into that. For those of you that are, this is your first time this weekend, I don't have time to go back and summarize, but we've been talking about the authority that God gave us. And basically, one of the, here's a way of summarizing it is that the Old Testament saints looked forward to what God promised, but it wasn't a reality yet. And they related to God differently than you and I do. Or let me rephrase that, differently than what we're supposed to do. The sad thing is most New Testament Christians still live like an Old Testament Christian. They weren't Christians, but an Old Testament saint. Most people haven't made the switch to the New Testament. And man, that's a huge statement right there. And one that a lot of people can't relate to, but that is powerful and it's absolutely true. For instance, we will often sing these songs about from Psalms chapter 51 where David, you know, after he was reproved of his sin with Bathsheba, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And he was praying that God would give him a new heart and take not his Holy Spirit. And we sing that in our churches today. Most of you have probably sung that song. Do you know what? That's terrible. It's terrible. Somebody said, well, it's in the Bible. It's an Old Testament scripture before Jesus came. The Bible teaches that when you get born again, he puts a new heart within you. You become a new person. And for you to ask God to give you a new heart when the Bible says you've already got it is at the very least ignorance on your part. At the very worst, it's just total rebellion. And it says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And for you to pray, oh God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me is wrong. For you to pray and say, oh God, we ask you to come and be with us tonight as we meet. It's wrong. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. For you to say, just go with us as we leave this place is wrong. It was appropriate for an Old Testament person to do that because they didn't have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. They weren't born again. They didn't have a new heart. It was appropriate for the Old Testament people. I believe it's Isaiah chapter 64. Rend the heavens and come down. And this is what people are praying today. Oh God, just rend the heavens, send your power. It's appropriate for Old Testament people to pray that because God hadn't come in the form of Jesus yet. But in the new covenant, Jesus has come and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And his power is now poured out. And for you to pray for God to move is an out and out insult to Jesus. You don't believe that he did it. You don't believe that he reconciled us. And so we've got to go back and relate to God the way Old Testament people did. And really, all of this fits into what I've been teaching about the authority of the believer. Most people are approaching God like an Old Testament saint that wasn't born again, that didn't have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, that wasn't a joint heir, that wasn't already healed by the stripes of Jesus, and didn't have a God who had already paid for all of their sins, and sin was a non-issue. Sin was the major issue in the Old Testament. Everything was based on your performance. In the New Testament, it's not. It's a completely different relationship with God. And most Christians haven't figured this out. Most Christians, to them, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is one blank page in their Bible. They run it together. They sing David's songs. They relate the way that Old Testament saints did. They pray the way that Moses and Elijah and David did and Abraham. They use this as an example of how to pray and how to petition God. They use the examples of Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 10 about the demonic powers that were 
holding the prayer back and people are praying today and trying to bind the spirits over Atlanta and over your city so that your prayers can get through to God. How dumb can we get and still breathe? We're trying to clear a spot over this place so that our prayers can get through to God. Forgive me for being blunt. I'm not really upset with you. It's just that, you know what, I'm... You know, I'm getting older. I'll be 60 next month, and I just really don't give a rip. Amen. I just had not got time to sneak up on you. Amen. I'm just telling you, that's stupid. Well, in the Bible, it, in the Old Covenant, it happened. We now have a, you know, this whole thing of getting your prayers past the demonic powers to God is silly. God lives on the inside of you. You don't need your prayers to get above the ceiling. You don't need your prayers to get above your nose. That's the reason you bow your head when you pray, so you can look at God and say, Father, amen. He lives right here. This whole thing of the demons blocking our prayers is just, it's, it's religious. That's a good way of saying it. It's religious. And I tell you, very few of us let the Bible get in the way of what we believe. We have our doctrines and this is the way it's been done and that's what I believe. And How dare somebody tell me what the Bible says? The Bible ought to be the foundation of things. So what I want to do tonight is just show you some differences between the old covenant, the way that people had to beg and plead with God and intercede for God's mercy, which is an attitude that is still alive and well in the body of Christ, as if God hasn't sent Jesus, as if we haven't been reconciled. And I want to show you that this is not the way that we are to relate to God under the new covenant. And I want to take some of the major players in the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses, and show you that what they did is totally wrong for you to do in the new covenant. And if you are trying to emulate them and follow their examples, you are totally against what Jesus came to do. That usually goes over about like that. (laughs) Now, am I saying that they are wrong and there's nothing to learn? No, we can learn a lot through them, but you do need to recognize that there's a difference between the things, the way things were in their day and the way that they are in our day. We can learn from them. They're tremendous examples. I probably spend more time studying the Old Testament than I do the New Testament. I'm not saying you throw out the Bible, the Old Testament, but you have to read it through the eyes, through the lens of what Jesus did for us in the New Covenant. What we have is better. Let me just take a passage of Scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and start here and just make this point, and then we'll go into some Old Testament examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 3... In verse 6, it says, who, all, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, talking about the Old Covenant, killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the uh, face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away... Before I go on and finish this, let me just say that sometimes when I'm teaching on that there's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, I'll have people come up and say, now wait, the Old Covenant ceremonial law 
has passed away, but not the law. And there's people that will fight you to the death that we still are supposed to be living under the law and doing all this. And what they mean by the ceremonial law is that we no longer observe the feast days. We don't have to keep the Passover. We don't have to offer animal sacrifices and a sacrifice every new moon. And these ceremonial things, like you couldn't wear a cloth that had more than one type of material to it. You couldn't mix cloths. You couldn't, uh, you know, there was just all kinds of restrictions. And they say all of these symbolic ceremonial things are gone, but the law is still there. Look at this verse in verse 7. But if the ministration of death, talking about the law, written and engraven in stones. What part of the law was written and engraven in stones? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is called administration of death. Some of you are going to think I'm against the Old Testament. I'm not, I haven't got time to teach on that. I'm not against it. There is a purpose for the law. If you use the law for what it was intended to do, great. Most people think, well, the law was intended to show me what I had to do to get right with God. Well, in a sense, but here, here's what the Lord was doing. People were thinking that they were good enough. They were comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves, which the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 10, isn't wise. And so they were thinking, well, Cain killed a man and he didn't get murdered. God put a mark in his forehead and protected him and said, if anybody touches Cain, I'll avenge him sevenfold. And so Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, comes along and he killed a man in self-defense. And he thought his murder was better than Cain's murder. And he says, if God is going to avenge Cain sevenfold, he'll avenge me seventy and sevenfold. God didn't say that. Cain, uh, um, who said that? Lamech said that. And so, see, people were comparing themselves and thinking, well, Cain got by with murder. I'm going to get by with murder. And they quit realizing what right and wrong was. They started thinking that I'm good enough. God's going to accept me. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. God wanted to extend mercy to people, but they wouldn't understand it. They were taking his lack of punishment as approval upon sin. And sin was running rampant in the earth and it was killing us. It was destroying us. Even though God's judgment wasn't coming upon it, Satan was destroying us through this inroad of sin. And so God had to do something that would restrain the amount of sin. If he hadn't, there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. And that's not an exaggeration. If you were to read Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, that was the norm. It was bad. And the Lord had to do something to restrain the amount of sin so that His purposes could come to pass in the earth. And also He had to take away this deception of self-righteousness, us comparing ourselves among ourselves and thinking, well, I'm good because at least I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. God's going to accept me. And so God says, all right, you think you're good. You think you're holy. You think that I have to accept you because you've only murdered one person in self-defense instead of murdered your brother out of maliciousness. Let me show you what perfection is. And he says, thou shalt not. And everything that's in the Ten Commandments is true, but it wasn't given to bring you life. It was given to show you that God's standard is out of reach. You can't live up to it. You can't keep it. It was given to minister death is what this says. It was a ministry of death and condemnation to show you that you're a sinner, to show you that you've fallen short. And if you were to take Galatians chapter 3 and put it with this, the purpose of the law was to shut you up, to be like a schoolmaster that beat you down. It basically just knocked you flat on the ground so that the only way you could look was up. You couldn't look any other direction for help. 
The purpose of the law was to kill you and to bring you to the end of yourself so that you say, oh God, if this is what you demand, have mercy on me. That was the purpose of the law. The slickest deception that Satan has ever put forth is to get the church to embrace the law and say, oh, thank you, God, for showing us what we must do. And they're preaching it. Unless you do this and this and this, God won't bless you. No, the purpose of the law is to show you if you are trying to earn God's favor, then here's the standard. It's not some lower standard. See, today, basically, they've, re- they've reduced the standard to such a low level that anybody can do it. Everybody's going to be accepted by God. That's not true. God wants to accept us by mercy. He doesn't want to give you what you deserve. He's willing to just give you relationship with Him as a free gift. But if you think that you earn it because you haven't been as bad as somebody else, you're the very person that will miss the the things of God because God's not going to deal with any of us based on our performance. So if you think that you deserve it, God says, all right, let me show you what righteousness is. And He gives step one through 10,000 of everything that you should be doing. And it's not just the ceremonial law that passed away. This says the law written and engraven in stones, the Ten Commandments, is administration of death. If you use it for that purpose, it's okay. You know, I'm really wanting to go past this, but I know that I've just, I know I've got some of y'all's hackles raised and you're sitting there rejecting what I'm saying. And until I get you on the same page, I don't feel like I can go on. I am not against the law. If you use it, For the purpose, the law isn't given to make you righteous. It's not given to give you relationship with God. It's not your way to God. The law is given to show you you can't make it. Humble yourself and receive it as a gift. Let me tell you this story that will illustrate what I'm talking about. It's like the guy who went to heaven and Peter met him at the gate. And Peter said, uh, so what makes you righteous? And he said, oh, I've been living a good life. And the guy said, oh, so you've lived good enough to get into heaven? And he said, well, certainly. And so he says, all right, I got a quiz here. All you got to do is make 100 points. And he, the guy says, no problem. He says, man, I've lived a good life. I can make 100 points. And so Peter asked him, he says, all right, did you go to church? He says, I never missed church. I had perfect attendance. And he says, that's half a point. And then he says, were you faithful to your wife? And he says, I never cheated on my wife. I was absolutely faithful. He says, that's one point. And then he starts, well, did you tithe? Yes. That's a half a point. And after, I mean, five or six things, he had two or three points. And he says, my God, if this is the way you're grading me, it's all, I'll never get in unless it's by the grace of God. And he says, bingo. Welcome. Come on in. Amen. That's what the law was given to do is to say that, you know what, God, if this is what you demand, I can't make it but by your grace. And he says, bingo, amen, that's it. That's what the law is to do. The law is given to drive you away from self-righteousness to show you that you can't make it. None of us deserve the things of God. If we got what we deserved, every one of us would go to hell. You cannot stand before God based on your own acceptance. So the law, if you use it for that purpose, is good. I was holding a meeting in Houston, Texas one time, and it was in a hotel like this, and it was about two, 300 people, and there was a guy that came in and stood at the back for a while, and then he sat down, and I was preaching, and he just stood up during the meeting and started yelling at me and saying something, and he was either drunk or high on dope or something, and he wasn't coherent, 
And I couldn't really answer him. And so finally, I just got put out and I said, sit down and shut up in Jesus' name. And this guy just plopped right down. (laughs) And I went ahead with the service. And then after the service was over, he came down front and I started talking to him. And I told him about the love of God. And I said, God loves you and God wants to change your life. And whatever it is that's bothering you, whatever you're high on, God is better than that and God can set you free. And I ministered goodness and, and grace to the guy. And this guy turned around and he says, I don't need that. He says, I am God. He says, I am God. And he started into this junk. And you know what? I extended mercy to the guy. But when he says, I am God and thought that he didn't need God, that's what the law is made for. It says over in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that the law isn't made for a righteous man. It's made for the lawless and disobedient. When you get born again, you become righteous. The law isn't for a Christian. The law is for a non-Christian to show them their need and to drive them to God and get them out of self-righteousness. So you know what I did? I took the law like a club and I beat this guy with it. I said, you sorry thing. You stink in the nostrils of God. How dare you say that you're God? And I just begin to show him all of sin and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. All of your righteousness is like filthy rags. And I just beat this guy to a pulp. And I mean, within minutes, he was sitting there crying, oh God, have mercy on me. That's the purpose of the law. If you want to use the law like that to show a person how rotten they are and how sorry they are, that's the purpose of the law. But to use the law to try and get a person to fulfill it and earn their way to God is totally missing what God intended the law to do. And this is what religion has done is substitute the law for Christ. The law is the stepping stone to most people's relationship with God. And if they keep it as good as they can, then that God will accept them. The only thing wrong with that, nobody can keep it. All of you in here who think that you're living a holy life, if you were to come up here, I guarantee you, I could keep pushing your buttons and saying things until I get you mad at me and we would show that you aren't perfect. Some of you are already there. Some of you are already mad at me and I've already proven that you aren't perfect, amen. Well, I'm not perfect, but... And then you start grading on a curve. The Bible says in James chapter 2, it says if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. It doesn't matter if you live holier than I do. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You need a Savior. And if you are into deception thinking, well, I'm pretty good, then the law is made for you to show you how sorry you are so that you quit trusting in yourself and turn to God. So in that sense, the law was a ministration of death. It was written and engraven in stones. This isn't talking about the ceremonial law. It's talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about the law was given for a lost man and it's an Old Testament way of relating to God. It is a ministration of death. In the New Testament, Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. He didn't come to bring us death. The law is contrary to the new covenant relationship that Jesus purchased for us. So I say all of that based on verse 7. For if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. When was it to be done away? 
like in the New Jerusalem at the end of this world. No, the book of Hebrews, many other places, it's done away. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 7 says that it is disannulled. The word annul means to cancel. The word disannul in the, in the Hebrew, I mean in the Greek, it's literally like to super cancel, to totally cancel, cancel to abolish. It's a superlative that doesn't even really need to be stated. It is disannulled. It's obliterated. It's done away with. And that which is old is ready to vanish away. Man, there's just so many scriptures on this. In verse 8, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation, again, talking about the Old Testament law. Remember in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Condemnation isn't the ministry to the New Testament believer, but the law, it is ministration of condemnation. If you feel condemned, and the word condemned is a kind of a religious word that some people lose, but here's what it means. Like in the United States, if a building is just derelict, is what they call it in England, if it's unable to be inhabited, if it's unsafe, you condemn it. That means it's unfit for use. If you feel unfit for use... If you feel that God can do miracles, but you don't have the confidence that He'll do it through you, you're condemned. And if you're condemned, it's because you're under the law. You are still relating to God based on your personal relationship and not based on what Jesus did. Thank you for both of those amens. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, talking about the Old Testament, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. For even that which was made glorious, talking about the Old Testament, had no glory in this respect or in comparison by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away, see here it puts it in the past tense, it's already done away. The Old Testament law is done away. If that was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. And seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face. This is talking about that when Moses was up on the mountain in the presence of God for 40 days, when he came down, his face was actually shining. He had been in the presence of God and his face was radiating the glory of God and it scared the people. They couldn't look at him because the glory of God was on him. So Moses had to put a veil over his face. And when he was talking to the people, he wore a veil. When he went into God, he took it off. And so there was a veil that was between the glory of God that was on Moses and the people because they couldn't stand to see the glory of God. So this is what he's referring to. He says uh, in verse 13, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, notice that he's talking about that which is abolished, he's talking about the Old Testament law, but their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Let me just cut to the chase. And what this is saying is that as long as you are still under the Old Testament mindset and trying to relate to God based on your performance, on your goodness, then there is a veil, a darkness, an uh, a blindness that keeps you from understanding God. You can't see through a veil clearly. But you remove the veil and all of a sudden things come crystal clear. If you get out from under the law, you will begin to understand God and relate to Him in a way that you've never related before. 
Now, there's still tremendous benefit in the Old Testament law if you understand it in the light of the New Testament, but most people don't, and because of this, our minds are blinded to what God has done for us through the religious concepts that have been taught us in the body of Christ. Those are strong statements, but they're absolutely true. In verse 15, it says, But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, that's talking about in the New Testament, having direct relationship with God, not having a dark veil in between us, but now the veil has been rent, and we can go right into the presence of God. With open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord." Most people interpret this that we just go in steps and stages. It's from glory to glory. God is changing us from glory to glory, step by step, little by little. Nope, when you get born again, you get the glory of God instantly. What this is talking about, we are changed from the glory of the Old Testament to the glory of the New Testament. And in all of these preceding verses, he says, so far surpassed the Old Testament that there wasn't even any glory in comparison to what we've got. What we've got is so awesome that, brothers and sisters, if the body of Christ could understand what Jesus purchased for us, if we could truly understand what it means to be redeemed, that sin is forgiven, not only the sins you committed up until then, but all sins, even the sins you haven't even committed yet, are forgiven. Sin has been obliterated. Sin is not the obstacle between you and God. That's just like heresy to the average Christian. And yet that's the New Testament. And because we have these religious traditions and doctrines of man, they are blinding us from understanding what God has. So I want to take some scriptures tonight and shake you to your core. And I don't do this to try and unsettle you, but sometimes you got to terrify a person before you can edify them. Sometimes you got to pull out the rug out from under them to get the right rug under them. Sometimes you've got to jackhammer the foundation that people have before you can get them on the right foundation. And we have a lot of concepts about the Lord that do not square with the new covenant, specifically the authority that we have in Christ. And so I just want to point some of this out. And these are just a few of the examples in the Bible. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 18. And this is an instance where three men, is what the scripture says, appeared unto Abram. Abraham and told him that in the next year his wife would conceive and that she would have a child. And this is where uh, he received the promise and Isaac was born the next year. It turned out that one of those men was the Lord. And he sent the other two men down to Sodom and Gomorrah and he stayed behind and the Lord started talking to Abraham and said that I have sent these angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah to see if what I've heard is true. And if it's true, then I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is where Lot, Abraham's nephew, lived. And so Abraham had an interest in what happened here. And I purposely believe that the Lord stayed behind and told Abraham what he was doing because he wanted him to intercede and stand in the gap and help turn this situation around. But he needed someone to stand there and intercede so that he could pour his mercy out on these people. So anyway, this is the background. And in Genesis chapter 18, 
And in verse, um, let's see where this starts. In verse uh, 25, it says, well, let me back up to verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You know, this is amazing to me that Abraham had the audacity, the boldness to talk to God this way. Basically what he's saying is, hey God, aren't you righteous? Wouldn't you do what's right? Would you go down and would you kill all of the people in Sodom if there was 50 righteous? Would you kill the 50 righteous along with the unrighteous? That wouldn't be right. You wouldn't do something like that, would you? (laughs) Man, I'd never talk to God that way. He had a boldness here that the only way I can understand this is to say that he knew God and he knew God was a merciful God that it emboldened him because he knew at the heart God was a merciful God. And even though God was about to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he knew that God was a merciful God. And so he was trusting that he would strike that cord of mercy in God. And so he spoke boldly to the Lord. And here's how the Lord responded uh, unto him. Let's see, where is that? Verse 26, And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. And so Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the 50 righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there 40 and five, I will not destroy it. And he said unto them yet again, uh, and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be thirty found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet this once. Peradventure there shall be found there, uh, shall be, shall ten, shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way. And it turned out that there wasn't even ten righteous people. And so the Lord did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But in mercy to Abraham, he saved Lot and his wife and two of his daughters. And of course, his wife turned around and turned into a pillar of salt. But Lot and his two daughters were saved even though they didn't meet the requirement of ten. God still showed mercy. I believe that if Abraham would have kept going, he could have got God down to one. If there was one righteous, and the Bible says over in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Lot was a righteous man. God would have spared it if there had been only one. Now this is not the point that I'm making, but this is an example of how you interpret Old Testament in the light of New Testament. If Abraham, a physical man who sinned, who lied about his wife and was willing to let a man take his wife and commit adultery with her so that he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't suffer. A man who had sins and who had problems in his life. If a physical human being who was a failure in some ways could get God down to sparing a place if there was just ten righteous, don't you think that Jesus could do at least as good negotiation? 
Well, I can guarantee you there's 10 righteous people in this room. And therefore, if you just took this and applied it straight across the board, then how do these people come off saying that God's about to judge America and going to destroy us and do these things? Because there are righteous people in this nation and there are people who have interceded. And you know what? God isn't going to destroy this nation. Now, that's not to say that this nation isn't going to be destroyed because we're in the process of destroying it ourselves. I'm not saying that we're just secure, but God's not going to judge us. In the old covenant, man, he would have spared the place for 10 righteous. We got more than 10 righteous in this room. And Jesus did a better job of negotiation than Abraham did. But see, this is the way that it was done under the Old Testament. They pled with God, oh, don't pour out your wrath. Oh, God, have mercy. And it was appropriate for Abraham because Jesus hadn't come and he hadn't reconciled us unto God and he hadn't paid for our sins. And so it was appropriate. I used to say when I first got turned on to the Lord that if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we are getting close to being as ungodly as Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know that Sodom and Gomorrah ever had parades where they bragged on gay pride and tried to pass laws to make it acceptable. You know what? We are in the category of Sodom and Gomorrah. But now I say if God does judge America, he'll have to apologize to Jesus. Because Jesus has atoned for us and God's wrath is not being poured out on us today. Contrary to what a lot of people are teaching. That doesn't mean that it's okay to just go live in sin. Because even though God isn't bringing his wrath on it, Satan is gaining inroad to people through, through sin and he's just destroying people's lives. And so you should quit living in sin. I'm not advocating sin, but I'm saying God's not going to bring his wrath and his punishment upon sin. God is not the one judging you for your sin. He judged Jesus for your sin. And he, it would be double jeopardy to, call, to make Jesus and you pay. He doesn't do that. Thank you for all three of those amens. Look over in Exodus chapter 22 at another example. This is Moses and he had been up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and he had been in the presence of God for 40 days and for 40 nights. And in Exodus chapter 32, in verse 7, this is while he was in the presence of God after getting these commandments. Exodus chapter 32 in verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You know, this is always amazing to me. When the Lord told Moses to go down to Pharaoh, he says, Go into Pharaoh and say, Let my people go. When he came to redeem them out of Egypt, they were his people. Let my people go. But now that they messed up, he says, Go get your people that you brought out. It reminds me of a husband and wife. When the kid wins the award, that's my son. But when he messes up, look what your son did. Amen. (laughs) The Lord is saying, your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of them a great nation. You know, this is an amazing thing. 
The Lord is saying, Moses, get out of my way. Don't mess with me. Don't plead with me because you can turn me. You can keep me from doing what I want to do. That is absolutely astounding that God Almighty would take our heart, our wishes into account. But, and that's not because we are so special. It's because God is so special. It's be, it shows how much God loves you. God loves us so much that you know what? We can turn God's heart and keep him from doing what he had planned to do. He says, Moses, get out of my way. Don't plead with me because I want to just destroy these people, wipe them out and start over again. That's an amazing fact. And so um, what verse? In verse uh, 11, and Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? He reminded him, he says, they're still your people. They aren't my people. Why does your wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt with power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Again, this is amazing. He's basically saying, Lord, how is this going to look on your resume? How are people, this is not going to be a public relations deal. If you do this, it's going to hurt your reputation. What are the people of the earth going to think when they hear this? It's amazing to me that he would talk to God this way. And then he says, repent. Here's Moses telling God to repent. That's amazing. And look at verse 14. If you go down to verse 14, it says, and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. It's amazing that Moses said, repent. And it's even more amazing that God repented. And of course, theologians who come up with that God is omniscient and all of these things and that God knows everything and that nothing is really like it appears in the Bible, they would say this was rhetorical, that God was just doing these things and knew what He intended to do all of the time. And He just did this to force Moses into a position of of intercession, but God never was going to do it. Nobody could ever change God. Uh, Look at this verse in Psalms 106 real quickly. Let me just read this to you. Out of Psalms 106, in verse 21, it says, They forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things uh, by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. You can say this however you want to. The Bible says he would have destroyed them if Moses hadn't stood in the breach. God was about to wipe out the entire nation because they had made this molten calf and were worshiping it. After he had done these terrible judgments on on, uh, Egypt and had done these wonderful things for his people, they just rejected him and God was about to wipe them out. And Moses stood there and said, repent, turn from this evil. And God repented. You know what? There's people that use this exact passage of Scripture to teach how we should pray and intercede for America and plead for people and, oh, God, turn from your wrath. 
You know, I had a woman come to me not too long ago and she says, I know that God answers your prayers. I've been praying for my husband for 25 years and he's not born again yet, but I believe that if you pray, God would hear your prayers and my husband would be saved. And she asked me to pray for her husband. And I said, I will not do it. And that woman just looked at me like, what's wrong? And I said, you know, the way you've presented it, you are making it like God could save your husband if he wanted to. And he doesn't want to. He won't listen to you, but maybe he would listen to me. And so you want me to try and coerce God to save your husband. I said, that is an insult to God. She was just stunned, but that's the way most people pray. God's done everything to save the world that he can. He sent Jesus. He's already borne your sins. He sent the Holy Spirit. And it's not up to God whether people get saved. You can't pray and claim somebody and make them get saved. The Holy Spirit is running and trying to speak to people. But you know what? He chose through the foolishness of preaching that people get born again. People aren't being born again today because they aren't hearing the truth. And somebody's got to speak the truth to them. It's not God who's not wanting them to be saved and not sending the Holy Spirit. There is a lack of truth going out. There's a deception. And very few of us are doing much about it. We're in our closet praying that God will save them when He told us to go preach the gospel and heal the sick and cleanse the leper. People get born again by the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It says in uh, John chapter 8 verse 32. It says in uh, John chapter 17 verse 17 that you'll sanctify them through that truth. Your word is truth. It's the truth that sets you free. It's the word that sets people free. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God is how people get born again. And you, you can't just sit there and pray and, oh God, would you save this person? That's an insult to the Lord as if he doesn't care about them. You know, along the lines of what Abraham did here, when I first got turned on to the Lord, I started all night prayer meetings. And we were praying and begging God and trying to plead with God to send revival. And this is before I spoke in tongues. And you know what? You can pray for the whole world in 30 minutes when you don't speak in tongues. And so these all-night prayer meetings would last 30 minutes or an hour. And everybody would be gone and I'd still be there praying by myself. And uh, anyway, I, I, re- I actually heard myself say this one time. I was pleading. I was crying. I was screaming. I was hitting my fist against, oh, God, send revival. And I actually had this come out of my mouth. I said, God, if you love the people in Arlington, Texas, half as much as I do, we'd have revival. And when I said that, I thought, something's wrong with this picture. And yet, you're laughing, but you know what? Many of you have done the same thing. You think, oh God, please, oh God, don't repent, turn from this fierce wrath. Oh God, have mercy on these people. That was appropriate for Moses to pray, but it's inappropriate for you to pray. There's a difference. I'm going to show you that difference more in just a moment. But there is a difference and you cannot pray the way that Moses prayed. That's an insult to Jesus. Amen or oh me. Look in Numbers chapter 16 at another example of this. This is where Korah, Dathan, and Abiram came out against Moses and said, you aren't the only person that God speaks through. We're priests. We're Levites. God's also spoken by us and they wanted part of the control of the nation of Israel. And so Moses said, all right, you get a censer, you put fire in it, and you appear before the Lord tomorrow, and we'll offer our incense, and we'll let God choose who's supposed to be the leader. Well, the Levites didn't even 
honor Moses enough to even follow his instruction. They didn't even show up the next day. They just snubbed him. They weren't even going to show up. And boy, Moses got mad and Moses stood and he says, if these people die a natural death, then you'll know that I'm not a true prophet. But if something brand new happens so that the earth opens up and swallows them alive into the pit, then you'll know that I'm the prophet of God. That's pretty strong. And immediately the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and 250 priests into the earth and then it closed upon them. Pretty strong. I think God showed who was chosen by God. And then look at this. It says uh, in verse... 41, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron saying, you've killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked towards the tabernacle of the congregation and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, get you up from among this congregation that I may consume them as in a moment and they fell upon their faces. Here again is the same thing that he said over in Exodus chapter 32. He says, Moses, get out of my way. Let me have my wrath on these people implying that if Moses didn't get out of the way, it would hinder God from releasing his full wrath. And so they fell on their faces, and in verse 46, Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 besides them which died about the matter of Korah. So it would be like, you know, if all of a sudden the glory of the Lord appeared over here and I realized that, man, the plague has begun. And so I went and I took some some, uh, coals from off the altar. This is an altar of incense, symbolized prayer. You took this prayer and you go and you stand. The plague starts and people just start falling over dead and I come and stand in between the ones who had died over here and the ones who the plague hadn't come to. And when the plague comes to this intercession, it just stops and it spares the rest of the people. That's what happened. And people will use this today to say, this is the way it is between us and God. Boy, God is an angry God and we've sinned and the wrath of God is being poured out and Hurricane Katrina was the wrath of God and uh, drought is the wrath of God and all of these things are the wrath of God. I tell you what, if Hurricane Katrina was the wrath of God, it wouldn't have stopped at New Orleans. Atlanta deserves just as much judgment as New Orleans. When God goes to judging, you know what? In the book of Revelation, they're going to say, hide us, let the rocks fall on us. They're going to be wanting to commit suicide. There's going to be no question about whether this is God or not. That's not God's judgment. When you build a city below sea level and then you put a lake above it, and use levees to hold a lake up there. Plus you got the sea over here and the lake over here. Just a matter of time till you get destroyed. It happened in 1910. There was more people killed in 1910. They rebuilt it. Now they're rebuilding it again. And you know what? If the Lord tarries, it'll happen again. It's just stupid. 
That's not God doing that. It's just stupid. It's foolish. It's like building your house on a cliff. And when it falls down the cliff, you get mad at God and say, the wrath of God is falling. That's not the wrath of God. Well, somebody said, man, these are all scriptural examples. What about this? Look at this verse over in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2. That's 2 Timothy. No wonder it didn't look right. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. I'm breaking right into the middle of what he's saying here, but it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You know, Moses, Abraham, David, they were mediators. The word mediator means a person that stands in between two opposing parties to try and reconcile them. That's what a mediator is. And it says over in uh, Galatians chapter 3, I believe it's verse 19, that the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And then the next verse says a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. That's awkward the way it's phrased, but what this means is God is only one. So this isn't talking about a covenant made between God and Jesus. This is talking about the covenant made between God and man, and Moses was that mediator. Moses stood between an angry God and unholy man who deserved judgment and wrath and said, Repent, turn from your fierce wrath. O God, have mercy. Abraham stood between an angry God and people who deserve to be judged and said, if there's 50, would you spare him? If there's 40, if there's 20. And he was interceding as a mediator. And it was appropriate because there has not been mediation between God and man. So it was appropriate for them to pray that way. But Jesus is now a mediator. And according to the scripture, Jesus drew all of the wrath of God upon himself. I'm not going to take time to turn over there, but in John chapter 12, verse 32, it's, or 31, somewhere right there, it says, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And people interpret this that if you just preach properly, everybody will come hear what you've got to say. That cannot be proven. You can't observe that. The biggest churches in the nation today are the ones that are compromising. They aren't the best churches. And so you can't observe this. That doesn't mean that if you just preach it right that everybody will come. This, the word men is italicized. And you know what that means? That translators added it to give clarity. And even though it's not wrong for them to do that, like sometimes they had to do it to make it grammatically correct. There was a difference between the Greek and the Hebrew. But sometimes they missed it and they, at least they had enough integrity to put it in italics and let you know that this wasn't really there. It was their interpretation for clarity. So it says, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. What's the subject? The verse in front is now is the prince of this. Let's see, how's it go? You got that? Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. It's talking about judgment. And then the next verse, not verse 32, but verse 33 says, this he said signifying what death he should die. This wasn't talking about that he would just draw all men unto him. He was talking about that he would draw all of God's judgment unto him. And this was signifying that talking about the crucifixion. 
When Jesus was hanging on the cross, all of the wrath of God, all of it, all of it, everything that you have ever done, every homosexual, every liar, every thief, every murderer, every person who has ever done anything wrong from time past to time, eternity, the entire human race, every bit of wrath of God was put upon his son. All of it, so much so that Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was a quotation from Psalms chapter 22. It was prophesied and the next verse in Psalms chapter 22 explains why he turned away. It says, but thou art holy, O God, that that inhabits the praises of Israel. Jesus became unholy. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God, for he, God, hath made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't just bear a little token of sin. Jesus became vile. I know some of you, this, this is struggle for some people to get hold of. But all of the shame that you've ever felt, all of the... You know, at times we just feel like, God, how could I have done something? You feel so much shame. You feel so dirty. You feel so vile. Take that and multiply it times billions and billions and billions of people. All of the iniquity that Hitler did was put on Jesus. All of the iniquity that Saddam Hussein did was put on Jesus. Every homosexual act ever done on the face of the earth, Jesus bore that sin and that shame. He bore the hatred, the lust. Everything that has ever been done entered into Jesus. All judgment came unto Him. And for God to do that and then still be mad at you would be like in a sense wasting the judgment that came upon Jesus. I'm telling you that God put so much judgment on Jesus that there isn't any wrath left in Him for those who have accepted Jesus. He's not mad at you. And when you sit there and say, oh, God couldn't forgive me. You don't know what I've done. You know what you're doing? You're just slapping Jesus in the face. Like, oh, Jesus isn't enough. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what Jesus did. You're saying Jesus didn't pay it all. Jesus didn't pay enough. I'm so bad, I've got to also pay for myself. That's the height of arrogance. You think that you could offer God something that Jesus hadn't already done. Jesus has already paid. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. He ended all mediation. And if you try and stand there like Moses and say, repent, oh God, you are against what Jesus has done. Jesus has already caused God to repent. He's borne all of God's wrath and judgment. God isn't mad at you. Sin has been paid for. And if you are standing there and saying, turn from your fierce wrath. Oh God, don't pour out your wrath. I'm going to say this real strong, but it's true. It's anti-Christ. It's against Christ. It's against what he's done. When you're pleading and saying, oh God doesn't want to save my relative. But if you would pray, God might answer your prayers. You're trying to put me in a position that Christ alone can occupy. He's the only mediator. I don't have to motivate God. I don't have to get God to love somebody. He loves people much more than I do. I don't need to plead with God to heal this person. I don't need to plead with God to save this person. Jesus has pled with God to end all pleading. There is no pleading. 
New Testament believer doesn't have to beg God. We aren't beggars anymore. We're different than Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah. It's different. Jesus has put us in a brand new category. The old is past, the new is come. And I have access into the very throne of God now by a new and living way. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. It's a new way. It's not the old way. I now have an authority and a boldness to enter right into the very presence of God. And yet very few Christians are doing that because they're still living under this old covenant mindset. In a sense, they are still looking for a mediator. They're trying to make me or some preacher their mediator. We turn our collars around backwards to show that we're better than everybody else. Wrong. It's not the right way. You, you can now enter boldly through Jesus. The, the wall, the veil has been severed. There's no longer any separation. There's nothing holding us back from God. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if we knew what we had, if we knew who we were, hell trembles at you. Hell is is terrified of you. That's the reason he fights you so hard, because he knows your potential. He knows that if you ever get hold of this, it's all over. You're the one with victory. Thank you, Jesus. Cancer is nothing compared to the power that's in you. And yet most of us see God as having that power, but we haven't got access to it yet. We have to beg and plead and call upon God and go to somebody else to do it for us. When the truth is you are now in the very throne room with God. You have this power on the inside of you. You need to get rid of this Old Testament mindset and quit being separated from God because you've not done everything you should. You ought to come in by a new and living way that God has consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say through His flesh. And we ought to purge our conscience from dead works so that we could serve the living God. We need to quit being sin conscious and recognize that we have the righteousness of God. We are now in agreement with God. God's not upset with you. You don't need to plead with God. God's not angry. His wrath has been satisfied. It's over. If a person goes to hell, they don't really go to hell for their sins. Their sins have been paid for. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has already paid for the sins of the whole world. Homosexuality isn't really the problem. Murder isn't the problem. Adultery isn't the problem. The sin that sends people to hell is the sin of rejecting so great a salvation in thinking that, well, I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. I can make it on my own. I believe God's going to accept me. That sin is worse than homosexuality any day. To reject such a great gift and Him suffering the wrath of the entire world and you sitting there thinking, well, I don't need Jesus or thinking that, well, Jesus will just make up what I can't do. Let me trust in myself and just add Jesus to make up the difference. That defiles the whole thing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing but faith equals everything. Man, if you understand what I'm talking about, this is just totally transformed. 
our lives. And all of a sudden, we would begin to realize that, you know what? I am, I am totally different than all of these things. I don't have to plead with God. There, the wrath of God has been satisfied. We live under a covenant of grace and mercy where it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20 that God is not imputing men's trespasses unto them. And He gave us the ministry of reconciliation that we shouldn't be imputing men's trespasses. And yet the vast majority of churches saying, if you've done this, God won't bless you. God won't answer your prayer. God won't move. You dirty thing. It's wrong. God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. Oh, well, I know I'm not perfect, but... But if you aren't perfect, then you better have a Savior. And if you have a Savior, then you get it based on who the Savior is and not based on who you are. And just in case somebody's had their head in the sand for the last 30 or 40 years and hasn't noticed this, have you ever realized that some of the people that God uses, some of the ministers who have been used the most are jerks? They wind up stealing money. They wind up running off with somebody's wife. They wind up committing homosexuality and they have problems and people think, well, I thought they were of God. They were. You know, God hadn't got anybody else to use but dirty people. We're just in varying stages of dirtiness. Now, that being said, I believe that we ought to present a right attitude and we ought to live a holy life. And I'm not advocating that. We preach it to our students that, man, you need to have integrity. But you know what? God doesn't use me because I deserve it. I don't deserve it. If I got what I deserved, I'd go to hell. I don't deserve the blessing of God. It's the grace of God. And if you're thought, man, I deserve it. You need the law to show you who you really are. That's what the law was made for. But once you come to Jesus and put faith in Him, then you are accepted because Jesus bore all of the judgment of God, all of the wrath of God was placed upon Him, and you are now accepted with God through what Jesus did. Amen. And if you can understand this, this will help you to understand the authority that we now have. Jesus has done it all. Our sins are paid for. We aren't separated. God has given you the same power that raised Christ from the dead. You can speak and if you believe in your heart and doubt not, the words you say, it will come to pass. You can operate in the supernatural. You can heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. You can prosper in hard times when everybody else is suffering. You can sow in a year of famine and reap a hundredfold in a tough time. You can have joy and peace. We sang that song over and over. It doesn't matter if it's through the calm or through the storm. God's never going to let go. It sings better than it lives. But it works, amen, if you would believe it. You can get to where it doesn't matter what's going on. You are united to God. And if you understood this, what God has given you, you would quit approaching your problems as if I'm just helpless. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. You are now somebody in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know our identity. We're going around as beggars, eating out of the trash cans when we could be feasting on what God has given us. We're going around depending on doctors. And I'm not against doctors, but, you know, doctors ought to be for people that don't know God. Amen. There's nothing a doctor can do that God couldn't do better, cheaper. I bet you I've prayed for 50 people in the last three days that have had 
numbness and one lady here had her face contorted because they had severed a nerve and just terrible things all done by doctors. There's a reason that doctors have the highest malpractice insurance in the world. I'm not against doctors. I've got some friends that are doctors. I'm not against doctors. They're, do, they're fighting disease. Good on them, amen. But they're just people. And we've got the healer. And we, you know, why don't you just go to believing God? If you knew who you were, if you really knew what was yours, why in the world would you let somebody cut on you? Why would you take, have you ever watched these commercials on television where you have a headache and they say, take this pill. And then they start giving the disclaimers. Now it's liable to make you impotent. Yet your risk of a heart attack goes up. You're going to stroke, uh, all kinds of things, runny uh, stools and on and on and I'm thinking, my God, give me the headache. Let me have the headache. Why in the world would you take some of this medicine? Mercy. That just defies logic. I'd be afraid right now to ask how many of you in here take pills. I'm not mad at you. God's not mad at you. But why don't we go to believe in God and receive our inheritance and walk in health? The only pill you need is the gospel. Amen. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you're the winner. You're the head and not the tail. You don't have to let Satan beat you up. If you knew who you were and what you had, you'd live differently. The only reason we put up with stuff is because, well, I'm only human. I'm just a man. I'm not only human. One third of me is wall-to-wall Holy Ghost. I've been changed. And praise God, I am not going to act like I'm only human. I'm not going to relate to the way everybody else does it. Amen. Some of you think, well, you can't live that way. Well, don't wake me up. Because that's the way I'm living. And I haven't done it perfectly. I'm still learning. There's things that don't work perfectly. You know, and it doesn't bother me. I'm amazed that I see as much good things as I do. I really am. You didn't have to be so quick to agree. <laughs> but you know what? I, I'm, I don't see everything work, but I'm seeing great things happen. Just think, we have seen, uh, I don't know, 100 or 200 miraculous healings in the last three days right here in this room. And we probably could have seen another hundred or two if we would have been everything that we should have been and if people would have been receiving. I'm not saying that we're where we're supposed to be, but praise God, we're seeing some miraculous things happen. I've seen my son raised from the dead. I've seen two other people raised from the dead. I've seen others die that shouldn't have died. I'm not doing it perfectly, but praise God, I used to never see anybody raised from the dead. Now we see people raised from the dead. I know 38 people who have either been raised from the dead or who have raised other people from the dead. And in all of the Bible, there's only nine. Man, I know nearly four times as many people raised from the dead as recorded in 4,000 years of history, biblical history. (laughs) We're living in an amazing day. We're seeing some great things happen. That's awesome. And brothers and sisters, this is just for Joe Blow Christian. Every one of us should be walking in the supernatural power of God. You know, even if you 
struggle to receive what I'm saying, hopefully this will build a fire under you and motivate you to search it out and see, is this possible? Can we live a victorious life? Can we really walk in the supernatural power of God? Am I really to a place where sin's not an issue? God's not mad at me. He's not upset with how sorry I am. Man, you need to find this out. If nothing else, I hope I provoked you to go search it out. You know what? Before you can change, you've got to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. As long as you can stand to be the way you are, you will. You've got to get to a place where, you know what? I'm not going to be just human. I'm not going to be natural. And the works that Jesus did, I'm going to do. And even greater works than these will I do because He's gone to the Father, John 14, 12. You know, I was preaching on that one year in Corpus Christi and the pastor, God just zinged that thing right into his heart. And he got up on Sunday morning and he says, since Wednesday night, I've been thinking of John 14, 12 and meditating on this. And the scripture says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, will he do also and greater works than these. He says, We believe on the Lord. We ought to be seeing these works. And he says, I'm professing that we are going to see the dead raised, the blind eyes open. And he stood and proclaimed that. And as he was preaching, a man stood up and started towards the back and fell over, had a heart attack and died. And a nurse there came and took his pulse and he was dead. And they called 911 and the fire station was right across the street from the church. It took them 20 minutes to get there. And while they were waiting, the whole church was just standing there and he, you know, was wondering what to do. And all of a sudden he thought, I'm preaching on John 14, 12, the works that Jesus did. And he says, let's pray for this man. And they prayed for him. And when the emergency crew got there, this guy was up walking around. He was raised from the dead. And they took him to the hospital. And the man had to get a taxi to come back to church and get his car. And he got mad at the pastor and made the pastor pay for the taxi. But you know what? It's about that simple. If you start believing for it and start getting up and saying, praise God, I will do what God told me to do. You start stretching yourself. Something's going to happen. Amen. Some of you are afraid. You know, most people hate where they are. They don't want to stay where they are. They know there's something more. But when you start challenging them like this, they're afraid. What, what if I do this? Well, you know what? You run the risk of failing. But if you don't do anything, you're failing. It's like, I can't get out of the boat and walk on the water. And yet the Bible says in Matthew 14 that the boat was full. It was going down. And yet people wanted to stay in the boat. What's the advantage to stay in the boat? What's the advantage to drowning in the boat versus drowning on the lake? The boat was full. The world's sinking. People are miserable. People are spending huge amount of money on stuff to keep them perked up and they're doing all of these things. People aren't happy and yet everybody wants a difference but they're afraid to do something different. If you don't get out of the boat, you won't walk on water. If you don't begin to start believing something different, you're going to get the same thing that you've got. I'm telling you, Jesus has provided something awesome and we are living so far below our standards. I hope I just built a fire under you. I hope I motivated you that, man, praise God, do something lest you do nothing. Man, I don't want to die with the power of God locked on the inside of me. I want to get out 
I'd like to walk in the fullness of God. And I hadn't arrived, but I've left. And I'm seeing the power of God operate. I want to encourage you to join me and begin to start seeing the supernatural.